Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. All right, Angela, welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast. This one's been a long time coming. I feel like we tried forever to do this, and there was just like one roadblock and barrier after another, but we're here as such as life. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. It did feel like it took a while, didn't it, just to get our calendars, and then we have various things come up that, that got in the way, but thanks so much for having me here today, Jay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's just what I'm encountering all the time now. Like, it's not just you. Like, it's just like life in general. Like, this whole, like, pandemic COVID thing that we've been living for in the last two years, like, derails, like, everything it feels like because I'll have a family get together and like one kid will get the sniffles and we're like, ah, we got to cancel the party for today or I'll be headed out to travel. And my kid gets like a little bit of sniffles from school. And I'll be like, oh, does that mean I have to derail? So I think I'm just used to like shifting schedules. Like It's just like the time that we're in. It's been the same for us actually, but it's funny because here in the UK now, we have an announcement that from the 24th of March, there is literally going to be no no testing, no disruption nothing is we're going to go back to a world pre-covid and so you don't test you don't do anything you just go out and so you could literally socialize with someone with it in a month's time uh so yeah that's awesome you know, it's so, it's crazy to me because it's like hard for me to like believe that, right? Because mm. like for the last two years, that's been a, more or less a foreign concept. So to think about the idea of returning to quote unquote life as it used to be or normal, it's really exciting, but there's always like this cynical little like bug in my ear that's like, are you so sure that this is going to happen? So I hope that we here in the US like follow suit with what you guys are doing. I'm hoping that like everything goes well. And then in the US we're like, all right, we do the same thing. And where I live in the Southern, you know, East part of the United States, we're a lot more lax than say like West coast and California and other areas. So maybe we've adopted a little bit of that or we'll adopt more of that sooner rather than later. But hey, let's just get back to some sense of normalcy so that we don't feel like we're so socially isolated from people. Mm. We can accomplish that. I'll be pretty excited. I'll be excited too. So let's see. Let's hope that it actually happens. I know like I've got clients and friends in Germany and they have to, they literally have to test just to go to a government test to go to the gym. So you've got to, they've got to spend 45 minutes going to a testing center, getting a negative result to be able to walk into the gym, uh, which is, yeah. So it would be, wouldn't it be lovely for life to return back to normal? It would be. I can all I can do is like raise my brow to that one. <laughs> Seriously, to go to the gym, the place that will probably bring more healing than anywhere else. 
we're gonna we're gonna mandate certain things to enter that place. What whatever. Oh I, I could I could we could derail ourselves on this one forever. So with that, I'm glad that you're here. And I'd love to uh have you introduce yourself. Like I've been on your podcast before to talk about HRV, and I want I knew I wanted to have you on here because like when I think of like coaching and women's health and optimization and biohacking. I think Angela. So Angela, would you mind giving us a little bit of an overview of kind of who you are, your background, what got you interested in like this idea of health optimization and biohacking and and coaching? Take it from there. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Jay. Uh, It's such a lovely thing to hear because you've been so instrumental in my kind of journey and looking at HRV has been such an important part for me. Um, So I, I, uh, for those that don't know me, I was a lawyer for many years for my sins, a corporate lawyer in London, and literally just worked my absolute backside off. You know, it was one of those jobs where you're working multiple time zones with Asia, London, and the US at the same time, just getting absolutely no sleep. And I think in your 20s, you can get away with this for so long. You kind of feel quite invincible. Um, But then as the case for many women, I then went on to have my children. And this is where things really started to hit home. Um, And so I had this background of really, I just think I'd completely, you know, disrupted my HPA access. And when I then threw pregnancies into the mix, which I did like three pregnancies in four and a half years, three C-sections, you know, three babies with reflux, it was, it really took its toll on my health. And I went from being, I was never, I was never unfit, right? I was that the lawyer that, you know, wake up early, cycle into work, do a workout, work long hours, do crazy stuff. Like, working out 3am when I'm waiting for a document to be typed, which was probably insane. Um, But I was, you know, I was into healthy eating and things, but I I didn't really understand it. It wasn't my job. And so then when I had my kids, I suffered really badly with postpartum depression. And that hit Mm -hmm. me very, very hard. And uh, it really took its toll on my mental health, which as you know, has a massive impact on things like HRV and on your Mm -hmm. physical health and became very physical. And so I then was... um, on bipolar medication, really strong medication, actually, and really, really struggling until finally, my kids got sick, like we were talking about before the show, you know, they got this, they got a cough. And in in me, I think I was just on such a low ebb that I got double pneumonia, and I was hospitalized with it. And uh, that was pretty, yeah, pretty serious. So they were doing CT scans. Was that for you kind of like the, the main signal, like you probably knew that you were burning the candle at both ends? But was it kind of really when the ailments, especially the double pneumonia started to set in that you started to take a look back and say, okay, I think I'm now noticing or was it happening kind of as a, as a continuous process or was it like that was the light switch for you? That was probably the lights, the the trigger that changed my life, right? That was the point at which I did something. But I had been getting repeated bouts of things like, and I think we all have a, a bit of a weakness, right? If we're not looking after our health. Right. So I was getting bronchitis and pleurisy and different chest infections. And then I got the pneumonia. But I was so like at this point, I was so struggling with my mental health that I was contemplating suicide. I was just in this case where, in this situation where I was like, how can I turn the thoughts off in my head? And it felt right. like, ending my life was one way to do this but then I was in this situation where I was like but I have three children and how can I leave them and I was just I was you know it was like mental suffering and anguish and I think that that's why you know I got sick and I was neutropenic they were doing CT scans because they thought maybe I had lung cancer because my lymph glands were so enlarged 
Um, and so, but then I was admitted into hospital and that was where I really just, it was like a switch. Like you were saying, that was the event that made me think, right, I've got to do something about this. And when I left hospital and I got well, I felt so grateful for that. Initially, I was like, right, I'm going to really, really focus on my health. So I'd gone from focusing on my career, you know, I made partnership at eight months pregnant. I was very driven. Mm -hmm. Then thinking, right, I'm going to focus on my health. And I retrained. And initially, it was just for me. Um, And I was very fortunate. You know, my husband was successful in the city. So I actually had the time and financial freedom to focus on my health and biohacking. But then, which is amazing. And I feel very grateful. But then it was like, well, hang on a minute. I've kind of, I could see you can have high performance. You can have health optimization. But then it kind of came to me as like, well, how can you have both? Because you see this a lot, right? When people are doing events and triathlons, they often actually, or even bodybuilding, they're sacrificing their long-term health for the short-term gains. And so, sure. yeah. and it was the it same for me like in the career. It's a dichotomy. It's one or the other. And, and, and I like this. There is a level of balance that can be had. Yeah, definitely. And so that's what I was thinking is, well, how can I get both? And that was when I, you know, that concept of what I call high performance health, and that's the name of my podcast was born, because it was like, well, how can we have both high performance and health? And I realized that actually health optimization, if you really want long term success, it's the foundation of longevity in business and in life, right? It'll help you live younger for longer, but it's also going to help you in business. And so that's when kind of biohacking and diving into the science, but also looking at the art and science of it, right? The the complementary things, the the vagal nerve tone, like you talk about the HRV, all these things kind of came together and then you can get to peak and sustained. That's the important thing I think is sustained mental and physical health optimization. Yeah, it's such a beautiful story, Angela, because I think that it probably resonates with a lot of people who are, especially these high driven, high performers who are burning the candle at both ends. And, you know, when we're younger, we can kind of get away with it, right? But when our body goes through trauma, like it did for you when you had, you know, the birth of your children, and it happens to many women, I even saw this with my wife as well. And then you have age and other things that catch up to you, and you're still going just like 110% in all areas of life, then it finally can catch up to you. And you're like, uh Oh, I'm not, you know, this spry 21 year old anymore who like Mm -hmm. can balance, quote unquote, I mean, not really, but can do all these things. And then it just hits you and you have to say, okay, now what can I do to really attain a high level of performance, but also attain a high level of health? And again, there's not a dichotomy here, right? It's not like we have to have one or the other, but it's like, how can we balance both of them? For you, did it start off with you studying things like nutrition or was it exercise or was it like all of the above? You just fully immersed yourself into everything. I would say that the nutrition and the exercise, well, the exercise had always been a lifeline. So in terms of like my mental health, I needed the exercise. And that obviously I had to slowly, I had to rebuild it back on track after pneumonia because there was some Mm -hmm. uh, lung damage, like a a limited amount. Fortunately, I was very lucky, but I had to build that up slowly. So the nutrition, I started looking at really carefully, like what am I putting into my body? What does this, you know, food is information, right? It's a chemical information. How can Mm -hmm. I enhance the health of my body and mind? And I saw a functional medicine doctor. I worked very closely with them. I then obviously was retraining myself, doing even cognitive health programs to really actually start to understand what were those imbalances. Like one of the biggest questions for me was as somebody who was so driven and so high energy, 
how did I end up with postpartum depression so badly? Like mm. I, after mm. my third child, I was told, you know, you're going to be on bipolar meds for life. And there's a mm. real risk that you trip into things like mania. So I was kind of figuring out, like, how does this happen to me? Because, and I only ever took the meds to sort of do the internal work, but, and, and how can I come off them? And I think what I realized was you, you're in such a state of depletion post-pregnancy. And, you know, it takes, I think, something like two years for your body to recover. So if you have three pregnancies mm. in four years, you're going to be pretty yeah. depleted. And I wish there was more education for women around that, for them to understand things like DHA. You know, when you deplete, mm-hmm. your, your baby takes everything from you and will get all the vitamins and minerals it needs. But that depletion of your omega-3s and in particular DHA contributes to things like postpartum depression. It's not just the hormonal imbalances. And so understanding how to really nourish my body, that was where it began. And then I started to look outside. And then, you know what biohack is that? When you start in that, it just becomes addictive. It's like, what? You mean I can get better and better? (laughs) Exactly. I know. It's like once you kind of establish a really good baseline, but you realize that you can optimize from there, then it's a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money that you can spend going down that route. It was like when I started playing golf, I had a buddy of mine who's like, this is a bad rabbit hole for you to get in because once you start like getting your gear and wanting to go out and play and practice, it's going to take up a lot of your time and money. And it did. And so biohacking is the same way. Health optimization is the same way. But Angel, I, I love um, that you mentioned kind of this aspect of like the stigmatization that can happen when someone is having or a woman is having postpartum depression because as a psychologist, it's something I've seen so often often. And one of the recurring themes that I see is that a lot of times it's turned inward. Like, this is my fault. I'm the one who Mm. caused this. You know, maybe if I didn't do this, maybe if I didn't do that, maybe if I didn't have a child. And it's really interesting because a lot of people feel like they're in this alone when they're engaged uh, in, or they're experiencing, I should say, postpartum depression. When in fact, like the data is very clear that this happens way more often than uh, most women even realize. And for a lot of women, it is that they go to, okay, so uh, turn, turned inward, like this is kind of because of me. Also, they start to look at like the hormonal imbalances, but I love to also hear and that you stated this idea that they can also turn to things like new nutrition and supplementation, mineral imbalances, vitamin um, imbalances. These are things that also matter. And the cognitive piece is huge, right? I mean, if we continue to allow ourselves to spiral down this negative thought cascade, like it puts us into a pit of despair. Uh, What were the main things that helped you get out of that? I would say, um, first of all, as you were saying there, the acceptance. So I think it's very easy to blame. And I think women do this a lot, right? They're like, why am I like this? Why am I? And it was a very private battle because now I talk about it openly on podcasts because I think talking about it helps other people. But you can't, you can help other people to heal from scars, but not from wounds, right? And when it is wounds, you don't want to mention it to anyone. I found it difficult. You know, I remember sitting with a, with a psychologist and them saying to me, you're doing too much. And I remember just thinking, hang on a minute, right? This is getting my four old to school is an achievement I used to run multinational deals how can you tell me I'm doing too much like this is what my life has come to you know for me and I think it's very common that postpartum depression actually in women who've had very successful careers because there's almost this disparity and I think what I had to learn to do first was to grant myself grace actually to say you know yes this this is hard but at least I'm doing it and I'm achieving it and I'm I'm trying and then really the acceptance and becoming aware of my thoughts and understanding Mm -hmm. them I didn't I had no kind of 
understanding previous to that of like your thoughts create your feelings and your emotions and what happens so that was a huge which you know all about as a psychologist but that was a massive learning process for me Mm -hmm. um and so I had to re sort of do a lot of internal work really to come through it so it was the mental aspect alongside the physical aspect and the nutrition um all of that you know really coming together yeah no that's that that is phenomenal and it's a great just representation and story about how even people at their lowest, someone like you that is at a really low point, even admitted to kind of having these ideas of suicidal ideation and thinking about kind of these ideas of non-existence and then coming back from it. I mean, it's an incredible story. So I appreciate your candid candid nature of sharing this with us because I know that it's not easy to kind of like admit some of these things. And I know for you, it's a part of your healing process. You've mentioned that before, but still it's, it's a personal thing, but I know that it will resonate with plenty of individuals who listen to this and are either going through or have gone through or may eventually come to the point where they experience postpartum depression. So I really appreciate you you sharing that. I'm curious. So you take back your health and your well-being. You know, you were this really successful attorney, probably, you know, making plenty of money, doing really well for yourself. And are you an attorney now? I am not practicing now, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, and I knew that you weren't. So what was it that then said for you, I want to now, instead of going back and returning to kind of that position and that job, which you were highly successful in, now I want to be, you know, this person who is in the health and wellness and health optimization field, working at, as this health optimization coach. How were you driven down that path? So initially, as I say, it was for my own journey. So I was learning everything and it was quite selfish. Like, how can I get myself back on track? And then and really doing it for my children. I wanted to be there for them. That was my goal. And then it got wider and I was like, actually, you know, I'm gaining all these qualifications. I'm learning how to, I could do this with other people. I could help other people. And I started to do that. And when I saw the transformational results in them, and I realized that people don't really understand, right? So many women go through their twenties and their thirties and then kind of figure out, oh my God, I've hit 40. Everything's changing. That's often the crux point, actually. For many women, it's when they hit perimenopause that they suddenly go, what the hell is going on with my health? You know, (laughs) but there's always a point and I realized that actually I could start to create transformations in other people and help them Mm. to achieve longevity it was very much I I'd had this foray actually into my health as well in my 20s where I was diagnosed with PCOS while still practicing as a lawyer Mm. and endometriosis Mm -hmm. and we had a very strong family history of type 2 diabetes and I was prescribed metformin for insulin resistance and obviously a lot of people take it for longevity I couldn't take it. I literally could not eat on that drug. And Mm. so I started while still practicing, reading books and things and learning that there was a link between blood sugar variation and insulin sensitivity and lutensing hormone and the way that that impacted PCOS. And so Mm -hmm. I'd had some, I changed my nutrition and had some powerful results there. And so that was also playing on my mind and coming back to me. And I was thinking, there's so many people out there, right, that are struggling with their health. They don't know what to do. And they're just waiting. Doctors, I think the most frustrating thing for many people is they go to the doctor and the doctor says, I'll run some bloods. Certainly in the UK, this is how it works. And you don't see what those are. And then they just say, that's fine. They're all within range. And you've got absolutely no idea. And you might be at the very, very bottom. And remember, they're looking at disease markers, not optimal health markers like you and I do. And so then they're like, but I don't feel great. And they're just dismissed. And it's almost like the doctor is saying, you're not ready for me yet. 
But when, why are we going to wait to that point that they are now ready for you when prevention is so much better? And so yeah. it just, yeah, it sparked a mission in me to really help people. And my whole thing is, how can I teach you to become the CEO of your health? How can I help you take charge of your health? Okay. And if I can do that, right. it's so empowering. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. in the nature of the state of receiving medical care that is covered typically by insurance here in the U.S., is that it runs on this system of, yes, providing blood work to look at disease markers. And then if you, let's say, are flagged on one of these disease markers, then what's the next step? Typically not behavioral intervention, right? It's pharmacology. It's some form of medication. So a lot of people, if the medication doesn't work for them, say, for instance, for you, and I won't say necessarily it won't work, but you can't take it like for you with metformin, then a lot of it is going back to the physician and saying, okay, well, what's the next medication for me? Instead of asking a completely different question, question, which is, can sometimes medications help? For sure. But can sometimes also too, we engage in more behavioral change and behavioral intervention for change? Absolutely. And I think that that's just a really pitfall or downfall to our healthcare system right now is that's kind of built on this foundation of testing for disease markers only, not for health optimization, and then only kind of prescribing more or less a pharmacological means for help. And so I'm glad that you're doing work like you're doing to say, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach to this. I'm going to take a more holistic, integrative approach. And I love how you kind of conceptualize this idea of us being the CEO of our health. I actually think that's that's really cool. So I know, Angela, you do a lot of work within the corporate wellness sector, and then you also work with a lot of high performers. Like when you're working with somebody, I'm sure people come in with a vast array of either issues or concerns or things that they're looking to optimize or work on. For you, what are the key areas that you're looking at? I mean, where do you kind of start as the basis or foundation for health? Like, do you start more on the physiological side? side of things by running tests or having them kind of examine their nutritional quality? Uh, do you look at more of the exercise behavioral components or do you look at like the psychological components? Where's your foundation? Or maybe it's all of the, the above. It kind of depends. So it depends on when, why people are coming to me. So if I'm working with them on a one-to-one basis, for example, with uh, mm-hmm. like successful entrepreneurs or leaders in companies, then I'm looking at, they're, they're always looking to get to the next level, right? They often actually are pretty dialed in. Sometimes they'll have a health problem, but it's rare that I would get a client in that situation that say needs to lose, I don't know, like 50 pounds in weight or something because they've actually been mm-hmm. pretty well optimized, but now they just want to get to the next level and the next level because they want that peak like levels of concentration but they're not always able to deliver the same consistency that they've been wanting and and sometimes they're pushing too hard which you commonly see right with HLV is actually going to the other extreme and I'm just saying no we just need to dial things back because you're missing out on things like creativity you know if you're really really your HLV is tanking and you're not getting enough sleep and you're pushing yourself too far, you actually don't perform as better because the first thing I see that goes in that situation is you can methodically perform a task, but you've lost your creativity. And people in those positions, that's really what they're paid for, right? Is Mm -hmm. is that element of their work and their expertise. Um, So I look at them more as a whole. We will often run some some tests and some panels. Um, In terms of their diet, I will normally, their nutrition, I will normally incorporate their genetics as part of that. I find it's really foundational because it kind of tells me where to go and hunt a little bit further, right? So if they've got some health problems that are showing up and we can see, you know, that or that they're not of the body composition they want, actually finding 
And maybe there's somebody who has been doing something more of a ketogenic and low carb style diet. And then we find out they're highly sensitive to fats. And this is why they can't release that extra bit of weight or have that performance that they were looking for. So I do do mm-hmm. things like, you know, DNA testing, or I look at more functional labs. So organic acid testing, um, gut testing, mm-hmm. hormone testing is a really common one, particularly with the women that I work with, um, because right. you can see so much. So, you know, even looking at like with stress, when we're looking at that, I can see, you know, what stage of depletion are they in? Like, is their body meeting the physical demands at the moment? So we might see that cortisol is high, but is DHEA, another hormone, which you know is pro-anabolic hormone, is that Mm -hmm. keeping up with demand? Because if it's matching their cortisol, then we know they're keeping up. It doesn't mean they'll stay keeping up forever. But actually, Mm -hmm. if DHEA is tanking and maybe they're, you know, they're producing tons of cortisol, but the body is somehow limiting what's freely available in their saliva, we know they need support. So I do like to use lab work because it allows me to be very targeted with them in terms of what they need. That's obviously not Mm -hmm. suitable in in a corporate setting, right? You can't do that with that many people. That's more on a one-to-one. They just have a ton of money and they're really bought in. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And they're just going to do all those labs for everyone. Um, Right. But there are are principles that, you know, everyone can apply. And so I have this approach that I call shift where, and I break it down for them where, you know, the S is for sleep. So looking at sleep and how, because I feel like that's the foundation of everything and it makes everything so much easier. And then the H is for hormones. And so I explain to them the different hormones, not just stress hormones, sex hormones, but hunger hormones and how that plays together. And then the I is the insights where we discuss things like biohacking, using things like an aura ring, um, different, even just journaling insights they can gather and lab testing. And then the F is around fuel. So it's like, how can you fuel your body? And that is, you know, a four pronged approach. So for, for people listening, the acronym I use is flow, right? So it's like food, light, oxygen, and water. How can you hit those parameters? Because that's way you, the way you fuel your body. And then the last right. component is the T. So that is training your body and mind. And it's very much body and mind. Right. So because that's like that it. kind of helps you make that shift, right? So. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I'd love to break down this concept of enhancing our adaptability to stress and stress resiliency utilizing your shift model. Because when you were referring and describing the shift model, I was thinking about how I previously have worked with clientele and basically walked through a very similar model. I didn't use your acronym. Um, I don't want you suing me for you know training. <laughs> <and> training. <laughs> but one of the things that I did use was a lot of the concepts that you referred to. And so people might hear something like, you know, food, light, oxygen, water that you mentioned. And like, how would that, how in the world does that relate to stress? Well, it actually could do, have a lot to do with stress. And the one that you mentioned too, which I also agree, and I've spoken very openly on this podcast and other podcasts that I've done, that the foundation really to all of this, I truly do believe is sleep because you can have everything else in line with your health and and you can be doing everything for food and for uh, exercise and for all the biohacks in the world you want. But if your sleep is crap, then like it's going to negate everything else that you're doing. It's not to say all those other things are bad, but you've got to make sure that you have the basis of sleep as really the core foundation of health. So let's talk about this concept of, of stress resiliency, because I can only imagine, especially when you work within the corporate wellness sector, that it seems like a major topic, if not the major topic, would be this idea of stress, this idea of burnout. How do we create more fortitude and resiliency around stress? 
or adapt to the stressors that we encounter. So maybe it would be helpful for you just to tell a little bit about how you approach stress, how you approach stress resiliency, maybe even through like the lens of of your shift model. Mm, Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to do that. So I think one of the things with stress, the first thing that I always teach people is stress isn't necessarily bad. And Kelly McGonigal Mm -hmm. talks about this in detail and her TED Talks and her Mm -hmm. work on this is amazing because actually, if you believe that stress is bad for you, it's going to be so much worse for you and for your health outcomes than if you don't. And I think, you know, we can approach stress very differently. So some stress is good, right? And you and I both talk all the time about hormesis, which is creating deliberate stress to make the body stronger and more resilient. That's what resiliency, where resilience comes from. Um, however, if you are doing too much of it, then you're going to start moving into more of a depletion model. And I think that you can sort of use the athletic terms, the athletic training terms to really help with this, right? So we know that there's a difference when an athlete is overreaching compared to when they're overtraining. And if you are functionally overreaching, you are doing enough to create a response that's going to make your body or mind or both stronger. But if you're now Mm -hmm. non-functionally overreaching, you've tipped into that balance where you're just pushing too hard. And, And you see that. And I think you've very um, cleverly pointed out on my show that if you see your HRV tank by 20%, you're kind of moving now into that Quite sort of crossing the boundary between functional and non-functional overreaching. Nervous system is experiencing that allostatic load. Exactly. And whereas when you start moving into like 40% or below, are you now tipping into overtraining? And that's really what we're thinking about in the corporate world in terms of burnout. Now, that's a much harder shift to turn around. And the work that I had to do, you know, when you've burnt yourself out to the point that you're hospitalized in pneumonia, it's going to take a long time and it took years to get back. So we don't want people to go all the way there. And I think just helping them understand the parameters of where things are going and and how they can bring it back. And sleep is definitely a huge, huge part in that. But also Mm -hmm. understanding that if if you push all of the time and you don't have recovery cycles, your body will force you to recover. So it actually becomes a zero sum game because, and you see this all the time, like one of the most common thing in people who work for large corporations is social jet lag where they push, 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 push all week and they're out, they're entertaining, they're doing everything, they're working super hard, they're surviving on sort of five hours of sleep a night and then at the weekend they're like, oh my God, Saturday morning I find it so hard to get out of bed, my family hate me, yeah, my partner hates me, I don't spend any time with them and they just try to recover, the body's really compensating and then they do it again or they book a holiday and now they're sick on the holiday. You know what it's like, right? It's so common. And I think corporations don't support their staff enough. Whereas if you look at actually when you're a resilient individual with a really good structure of building in a foundational schedule that has the yin and the yang, has the pushing, but has the recovery cycles, you will have much higher levels of sustained performance on a consistent basis. Yeah, I, I think it is the key. You know, there I, back to this whole idea of like we cannot demonize stress, right? Stress is actually something that is not intended as a hindrance. It's actually something that is there to help us. It is an alert signal. It is a means also to help us build back bigger, faster, stronger, kind of from a fitness or performance standpoint. But as a fitness and performance, both physiologically and mentally or cognitively, 
The one thing that we have to recognize, though, is that repeated exposures to where we feel like our resources or perceived ability to handle those stressors are now being overly taxed, that's when we start to shift over into that allostatic load where we find that it's going to be representative in so many ways, right? It can be gut dysfunction, sleep dysfunction, lowered HRV representative of autonomic nervous system dysregulation. It can be all of the above. Even sports performance is hindered. Like all of these things can happen. And I think that we have to utilize these as levels of self-awareness, like these alert signals that are saying something's going on because I know, I don't know if you're like this, Angela, but I know for me in the past, I've been such a driven individual that I can talk myself out of any type of discomfort. Like for me, I'm like, I can muscle through this. I'm fine. Like nothing's going to like put me down. And the next thing I know on the weekend, I'm like imploding. And my family's like, what are you doing? You don't want to do anything. You're like sleeping way in. Like you seem like you have no energy, but then Monday comes on and the mask comes back on and I'm like muscle through, muscle through. Mm -hmm. And if I just took some time to look at some data or really check in subjectively, Maybe I would have caught it. Maybe I could see that my sleep architecture is like absolute crap or even my food decision making is absolute crap. So I think it's a matter of us really taking the time to take off the blinders a little bit and assess both subjectively and objectively from some data points. Like, where are we at right now? Are we trying to fool ourselves into thinking we're better? Uh, Or are we like, do we need to come to terms that like we are suffering and hindering performance because we're trying to just muscle through? I can only imagine that's what a lot of high performers, because that's how it's been for me. Is that what a lot of high performers, how they present is just like muscle through until like I basically don't have anything left or end up in the hospital. Yeah, a lot of them do. And I think that they and they feel bad because they feel like their relationships are not, as you say, they're not where they would want them to be at the weekend because yeah. they feel so depleted. But it's about mm-hmm. when they start to build in the consistency and understand that, you know, like, okay, fine. And nothing nothing that meaningful, particularly if you're an early morning type, right? And I do believe that aligning with your circadian rhythm is really powerful. For women, yes. even aligning on yeah. top of that with your infradian rhythm, your 28-day cycle, mm-hmm. I think, is even more powerful. But I mm-hmm. think if you're an early morning person and you're trying to work like I was as a lawyer till 2, 3 a.m., this is really, really difficult. Of course, you're going to be in a state of depletion because your body clock's all over the place. And we even used to write into contracts you know, that if there were grammatical errors, they could be, um, or typographical errors, they could be corrected because everybody was so tired, which is crazy. Um, But I think a lot of people do push beyond. Whereas when you start to build consistency and you think, okay, no, I'm going to be disciplined and I'm going to stop and then I'm going to get up again early and meet those demands again, you're refreshed Mm -hmm. and you're quicker and your productivity rate is so much faster. And the scientific research backs that up, doesn't it? When you look at the research around sleep, um, and I think a lot of people aren't realizing that you can only sacrifice sleep for so long without affecting your long term health and things like, you know, tau proteins and amyloid plaque building up, you know, in the brain that they're not aware mm-hmm. of and later may become symptomatic because they weren't optimizing sleep and they went below six, six and a half hours. I think there's a real risk to yeah. your health if you consistently yeah. go below that from the literature that I've seen. So, Angela, somebody comes to you uh, that you're working with one on one and they report a super high stress stress load. Um, they're, li- they're a hard charger, high performer, but they know that stress is a major component that is holding back their level of performance. Let's start with this concept of sleep. 
uh, when they, when you are assessing sleep, are you looking at things like sleep architecture and their aura ring, or do you start somewhere else? Like, how do you assess the impact that stress is having on sleep? And then what are some practical tools that you might implement for somebody to help improve either stress resiliency um, so that it helps with sleep or improve sleep so that it helps with trans, uh, so it helps with stress resiliency, kind of like that bi-directional two, uh, two-way road? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one of the things I really like to look at actually is their aura data. And so if they don't have it already, um, I find that somehow looking at aura for me, I guess I've looked at it more, I find easier to dive into the data and understand it better than something like the whoop i can work with it but i find i just find from sleep architecture and recovery point of view and the reason i like it so much is you can gain really valuable insights so for example if i see that their hrv is tanked at the early part of the night and it's gone below the line that aura is saying and then it's rebounding back up i know that actually they are just overstretching during that day but by 2 3 a.m they are beginning to recover and we might still see semi-decent levels of deep sleep and rem sleep what, what I commonly see in people that are highly stressed is that they their cortisol's high and so they're overshooting. Like they go into deep sleep and they might fall asleep, but as they're coming up, they don't come out and have some REM sleep and then go back down like they should do. And then obviously in the second part of the night, there should be more REM sleep. What happens is they almost like overshoot and come out and then they wake up. And then they're going to struggle to go back to sleep. And sometimes those are micro wake ups that they're not really aware of. And sometimes they're more profound and they feel like they were awake all night. And so it helps me to understand because then we can look at it and go, right, where where is this stress coming from? Is it poor blood sugar control? Is it that you've got food intolerances? Is it that you could even have some parasites, right, that are keeping you up? But what's going on in your day that's framing the night in that way? Is it Are you really bad, like, in terms of you sit and watch Netflix or drink copious amounts of wine to unwind in the evening and they've got loads of blue light coming at you and that's affecting your sleep architecture? Or is it that you're eating something that's causing that irritation so it's it's really helpful and, and as you gather that data and you can look at like three four weeks and I can see their breathing rate that's the other thing I like to look at because if their breathing rate is high you know that this person's really under stress unless they're getting sick yes. you know and, and yeah. often I'll see people their breathing rate is 16 and a half 17 and a half so it's like right. okay how can we physically get you to get that down to closer to sort of 12 right or even mm-hmm. that might seem too much at first But then I say to them, let's begin to do some breath work during the day so you become conscious of it. And and I know Mm -hmm. like, you know, four, seven, eight breathing, where you breathe in four, hold for seven, out for eight. If you think Mm -hmm. you're only going to get four breaths a minute, that's really hard for someone who's highly stressed to do because they'll hold their breath and they're like, you know, and they just want to take another deep breath in. So even doing like the two X breath, first of all, where they're in for two, out for two, and they slowly elongate that in for three, out three, Mm -hmm. and for four, out for four over a series of breaths, they're starting to slow it down. And then they drop their shoulders and they start to realize because half the time when someone's so stressed, they haven't really connected with what it feels like to feel relaxed. They've lost touch with that. So you've almost got to show them what it feels like so they can begin to connect with that energy and also they have to realize it takes minutes because these people don't have time to spend a long time doing things like they can't necessarily go and do a full-on Wim Hof session where they're lying on the floor and getting high on their own supply you know (laughs) it needs to be physically in the moment this is what I'm going to do and then they see it track on the data and really like I found Four, seven, eight breathing when you can get there moves your HRV quite significantly. Even things like move, reading fiction at night 
uh, changes. Some people, you know, like, and I was, I was really guilty of this because I love what I do so much, always reading health and performance related stuff in bed. And then I switched to fiction and my HRV comes up, you know, it's, so it's little hacks and changes. It's so funny that you mentioned that because there are two things that I used to be really bad at. One would be, yes, reading like health, wellness, and fitness, either articles, this could be journal articles or just like text of, you know, people that are putting out books uh, right before bed or in bed. Um, or the other one I would argue was way worse was reading like New York Times or Wall Street Journal or some other type of news outlet. And I think that was way worse. And I noticed that when I moved away from that, so I actually moved away less from reading in bed and only like reserving bed for like sleep and sex. That's like it. I mean, that's kind of like the goal is sleep and sex. And the only thing that I can do otherwise is like breath work. So I will do some of that without even any prompts unless I'm doing like maybe a pacer. And I've noticed that a couple things increased HRV overnight, increasing HRV faster um, within the sleep stages at night, but then also to a lower respiratory rate, which is what you were referring to, which is pretty incredible. Um, I think some people just go to bed with way too much of an amped up nervous system and they'll see like, they're like, why was my heart rate so high? My HRV so low for like the first like hour, two hours of the night. And then it finally lowered. That's a natural phase that we're going to see people, but you don't see typically like this stark, like crazy drop in heart rate. Like you want your heart rate to be pretty low prior to going to bed. And one of the things that I love doing is number one, not exercising too close to bed because that used to kill Mm -hmm. me. I used to exercise way too late. But the other thing is like just engaging in some simple breath work where we pace our breathing, do some breath holds, which can be highly important to help increase CO2 tolerance and reduce um, overall uh, blockage of the parasympathetic nervous system or vagal output it's just super helpful. So I'm glad to hear that. That's like a really good tool or tactic that you use. Do, do the people that you work with, do they buy into that stuff or do you have to do some like slight nudging or convincing just because it sounds kind of easy and maybe for some people it sounds a little bit woo woo. I mean, it's become a lot more commonplace now, but is that something that takes a little bit of buy-in like engaging in breath work? It, it can do until they see like, as long as they're, I think as long as you get the buy-in for them, to buy devices mm-hmm. to track as soon as they see data then there's no arguing it right so it's like okay yep. fine yeah you, i can see okay my breathing rate 16 and a half they didn't even know what that meant before so now it's like yeah. well what should it be oh well and then the, because these individuals are competitive so it's like they're competitive with themselves right. so it's like hang on a minute are you saying my breathing's no good so then of course they'll be like well how can i improve that and if there's a physical exercise that's small that's going to move the needle on that then they will but I, they are results oriented i think that's the thing and i think you know the other thing i find is not eating before bed it's almost better i've found to go to bed mm. a tiny bit hungry than yeah. than mm. yeah and your breathing rate and everything goes down but with women i've noticed yeah. as well your infradian rhythm plays such a big part in this right so your resting mm-hmm. pulse is lower at the beginning of the month every single time mm-hmm. um it's mm-hmm. going to be your resting pulse goes up in that luteal phase you know you see the temperature yeah. increase in the middle of the month around ovulation um but also your i just noticed like you're more like I don't know. So I guess men maybe they have uh, they have it a little bit easier, right? You're more like a man, bizarrely, 
when you're in that very beginning stage of the month, when they're on their period. And I think a lot of times mm. they have more energy then and leading up to ovulation. Whereas at the end of the month, when you know you really need to be careful and you want to optimize progesterone production, actually encouraging them to dial things back a little bit and not do the high intensity interval training at yeah. this point and keep fueling that stress fire because it's actually counterproductive. And the research shows that, yeah. you know, you, you're quite a bit more catabolic at that time. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I just, and, and Aura improving things like that all the time now in terms of the metrics. Yeah, Aura is putting out some new algorithms in their latest generation. Like I have the newest generation ring on right now um, that's supposed to help with period tracking. And I wonder, I don't know what they're going to do with that, but I wonder if they're going to provide some of those insights uh, to individuals to at least help better inform women uh, during the different phases of their of their cycle or their period, uh, what they kind of should or shouldn't be focusing on. I don't know. Maybe they're just going to inform like, hey, heads up, like it's coming, which I don't know right why you need a ring for that. I mean, a lot of times we can just do tracking via uh, what's called a calendar. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe they're going to use certain diff- metrics like Biostrap, I believe, has started doing something like that as well. Do you have any idea what they're really measuring or they're looking at? Are they looking at heart rate phase changes? Are they looking at changes in HRV, changes in sleep architecture that's helping to better inform women during those times? I hope so. I wouldn't say they've got it right yet at all because, you know, I've got the Gen 3 like you and what it did was, and I've spoken to a few other women in my, I have a a Facebook group called Female Biohacker and quite a few people Mm -hmm. in there have been saying the same thing, that Aura is basically saying you you track your period and then 14 days later it's saying it's time for your period. And you're just like, really? No, I'm sure it's ovulation. (laughs) If my biology lessons served me well. (laughs) So I think, I think they probably do have plans, but it sounds like they need to gather some more data from the users first to really be able to optimize that. But maybe hopefully exciting things will come. I think they partnered with Wild AI. I interviewed the founder. I don't know if you've come across that app. Wild AI are doing some great work. And Dr. Stacey Sims is on the board of that. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, it's a really interesting company, actually, that are looking at optimizing training around menstrual cycle and and Mm -hmm. having an open data source with companies like Aura. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, Helene. Cool. Uh, Might need to make a connection there for old Hanu. We'll have to see. Yeah, Helene Gayum, cool. who is the founder of it. I can connect you guys. All right. So I know that we could dive into this world of sleep for hours among hours among hours, but I think kind of a good takeaway here is uh, number one, being more self-aware by utilizing objective data. And we've kind of identified there are plenty of great wearables out there. I'm, I'm with you, obviously, as you know, like I'm a self-quantified individual who tests everything. I mean, I have three sensors on me right now. Like I'm had this EMF explosion. I'll probably die in an hour, <laughs> but I've got my Garmin. I've got my Whoop. I've got my Aura and I'm testing everything. Like obviously, like I'm you know a little bit of the fox guarding the hen house here with me owning a health tech company, uh, but I just like testing. I like collecting data, and I'm with you. I have just found that for me personally, like Aura is my go-to for looking at sleep architecture, and it's just one that I trust. And I know a lot of the people who work there, and a lot of the data scientists, and so I just know they do really good work. So I think a good takeaway point here is number one, like measuring is really important, but also knowing that there is this dynamic nature or relationship that occurs between stress and sleep and then sleep and stress. Is there anything other kind of like low hanging fruit where you're like, when it comes to like the interconnection between specifically sleep and stress, people should focus on and really like make sure that they attend to anything else stand out where you're like, this is another thing that I make sure is a part of like the protocol for the connection between those, those two things. 
in terms of optimizing sleep or then using sleep to optimize your day both ways around right yeah so i say one of the one of the most profound things that people should be aware of really in relation to sleep is the impact that it has on your blood sugar sensitivity so this is important from a health perspective because you know a poor night's sleep once you go in that in that division that we were talking about earlier of like five five and a half hours you're actually can become as insulin desensitized as a type 2 diabetic so um just in that 24 hours, yeah it's crazy isn't it and i think once you understand that that's gonna you know it raises ghrelin you're going to be more hungry the next day as well it lowers leptin now you're not feeling as satisfied so you, the next day you're never going to perform as well because not only are you really really foggy but you're having a really hard time of managing your blood sugar which means that you're probably going to go and search out sweet foods you're going to be looking for caffeine a lot of the time which can then have a knock-on effect on that next night's sleep as well and so it really really dramatically affects your performance and i think if people can understand that you're also going to feel a lot more stressed and the interplay between REM sleep and emotional stability and resilience is so profound and i think when people understand that as well because sometimes you'll you'll short sleep and you'll compensate and you'll basically get maybe you'll hit your deep sleep right because the body's got to repair itself but you're missing out on REM sleep and you'll never be as well able to cope with situations and challenges that are thrown at you during the day and have that emotional stability if you haven't prioritized mm. it. So I think when people understand that each part of sleep is so, so important, apart from the physical aspects of your health, but in how you then show up the next day, you start to yes. get their buy-in that actually, oh my God, yeah, when I feel really, really stressed. And then they see it on their data and they're like, oh my God, my, my REM sleep was really off and that meant my HRV was off and my emotional intelligence mm-hmm. just went down and resilience. They, they, yes. it, it's so much, they, they start to understand it and prioritize it so much more. The reason that we receive all these different data points on our different wearables, especially in regards to sleep and sleep architecture is for a reason. When we look at sleep stages, light sleep, deep sleep, and REM sleep for all intents and purposes, if we categorize them into those three categories, each one of them are incredibly important. And something that happens far too often in the health optimization biohacking community is that way too much weight is placed onto enhancing deep sleep. And there are definitely reasons to enhance deep sleep. But a lot of times it comes to the sacrifice of other stages, more, most particularly in REM. And I've seen so often that individuals will mess around with, let's say, like high doses of uh, things like CBD or uh, DSIP, which is deep sleep inducing peptide. And they'll find that their deep sleep stages will significantly increase. It'll go from like, an, let's say, an hour to two hours, two and a half hours, but then their REM sleep, which was, you know, maybe an hour and a half is down now at like 15 minutes or 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so I always tell people and they're like, yeah, I haven't recollected. I have no recollection of dreaming for like the past few weeks. Um, and I feel fatigued. I feel, you know, you fill in the blank. My HRV is kind of out of whack. And I'm like, let's make sure that we have some level of balance and we're not just throwing all of our eggs in one basket because it doesn't make sense to do that really in any facet of life. So in your own health and well-being and in your own sleep. I'd really watch out for that. So that's just kind of like the caveat that I always send out there to people. I'm like, there is vast importance in each of these stages. There's vast importance in latency. There's vast in- importance in how, mo- how many times you're waking up and kind of like the overall, what we, what is referred to as sleep efficiency. So I think it's uh, good to your point. Like it's just 
good to know kind of your numbers, but it's also good to know kind of like what, how these manifest and what it means for you and how it can dictate a lot of the rest of your day. Like it doesn't have to mean that just because you had a crappy days or a crappy night's sleep that you're going to have a crappy day because we can unfortunately use data to live a self-fulfilling prophecy. But what it means is that we can use that data in, in an effort to make change, not necessarily dictate the day, but in an effort to make change. So uh, Definitely. Yeah, I, I like and also you can use things, right? So if you understand that, as you say, right, you don't want it to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you've got some data that's shown actually you've had a really poor night's sleep, something like creatine, for example, um, is really, really effective for helping the brain compensate for a poor night's sleep. So you can use that, you know, so having some creatine, some amino, amino acids in the morning actually is going to be a really powerful nootropic for you. Yes, you can use some other things, but even those on their own are going to help you perform. And so you can tweak what you're doing during the day and use different adaptogens and different substances to really help you um, when you understand those metrics. And so I think it should be empowering rather than limiting um, as much as yeah. we can make it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I love that. I'm going to shift around, no pun intended, on your acronym of SHIFT. And I want to talk about the training portion. And the reason I want to talk about training um, is because I have kind of I guess you'd say adopted this idea. And it's kind of one of the things that I've been telling people is my go-to probably more than anything is this idea of training. And I use kind of training in, in two main ways. One is kind of exercise and fitness. And the other would be like training as in like breathwork training, biofeedback training, heart rate variability training. I just see it as the lowest hanging fruit and probably the most evidence-based practice for stress resiliency. I mean, exercise, I cannot think of um, after perusing through the literature, I cannot identify, I should say, any other form of treatment for stress and anxiety more that has been proven to be more effective than exercise. Uh, and it's one of the ones that I really, really hone in on. So I'd love to hear like, what's your approach to that T component, especially in relation to stress? Have you found that there are certain types of training or exercises that are better for stress? Like what are you looking for in regards to developing a fitness or exercise protocol that is specific to stress? Like what are those things that you look at and how do you kind of prescribe these to the, the uh, clientele that you're coaching? So one of the things I found, and I think you've probably found the same, Jay, is that amongst high performers, quite often, they are actually doing way, way too much high intensity work because they just want the buzz. And and it's helping them to understand that this can't continue forever. Women are probably better at grasping this, I think, but not always, not always. This is the interesting thing. And it's not until they start to see things show up that they're didn't want to happen so for example it's like okay well why am I under muscled and I've got this body fat and this visceral fat going around my abdominal area that I didn't have before I can't understand it I wake up I hit it hard I do a hit workout every single morning or I go for a run why is this happening to me and understanding that actually this is you are now putting too much stress on your body because as you say right we have this allostatic load and the body's trying to achieve homeostasis and if we can't Mm -hmm. keep up with demands and now you've added in life's fairly simple in your 20s for most people but once you get in your 30s and your 40s and now you've added in your partner your um children that you've got you're running around and as they get bigger it becomes even more challenging you know like now Mm -hmm. like one of my kids is going for a a sport
got scholarship and so now I have so many different clubs and things that I've got to get her to and she's got we've got to meet those demands maybe you've got aging parents you know you've got so many different things that are coming on that getting up at like 4 35 a.m and crushing a hip workout may no longer be appropriate so one of the things is educating them around this and I just think you know to use the yogi's example it's the yin and the yang you've got to have both mm-hmm. and you've got to build in recovery and active recovery so um it's working with them on that people find it hard they do and women i've seen you know sometimes they'll do it's not a high intensity workout but it's a vigorous workout insofar as they're going maybe to a gym or a class and they're doing one of these kind of like metabolic conditioning workouts for 45 minutes and they're like i'm not losing weight so now i'm gonna layer on a second exercise class after it so now we might do a spin and then something else and it's like the body's just hanging on here right it's not gonna release four hours in the gym yeah Yeah, it's too much so some I, of it's I education it first. So yeah, yeah. I, and, I, and I'm with you there. I see it so often that it's just like this. There, there is this high you get from it. Like if you engage in some vigorous workout, like the level of just accomplishment after you're done and kind of just like the head game and the mindset of like, dude, I just crushed this. Like it is a massive dopamine release and it is just a, it's that level of reinforcement that keeps you coming back for more. And it can be used in so many ways, right? For good or for worse, especially if it becomes for many high performers that I've worked with addicting. I mean, it is mm. there for the dopamine rush and like, it's the only thing thing that sometimes they can use to get that hit. I mean, it's like dope, right? I mean, it is like the thing that gives them that drug shot, you know, into the vein, like immediately is just to get in there, kill themselves in a workout because afterwards they feel so accomplished and have that dopamine release. But the problem is, is like outside of those hour, two hours that they're working out, everything comes kind of like crashing down on their body because they haven't given themselves the time to recover. And so it makes them feel stressed even more. So the biggest question that I think I have for you on this one is like, how do you help them with that behavioral component and even maybe the cognitive component of recognizing the potential detriment that overexertion, overtraining can have on their sense of well-being And stress resiliency, because I have found that this is a very hard thing to communicate to some people who use it as a crutch. It's it's really hard. It's really hard. I I, I completely agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more. What I would say is, although they're working really, really super hard, sometimes, and they don't like to hear this even more, is it's like, you're not working hard enough. So I'll ask them, Mm. can you give me your heart rate during the workout? And what you find is that they're pushing, but they're never really pushing at the maximum. But then they're also not doing enough low intensity work. And it's about helping them understand, particularly for women, as they go through their like 40s and 50s and estrogen's dropping, right? We've actually got to create a specific stimulus. We need lots of recovery, but we don't have estrogen now there. A lot of people don't realize that estrogen is a significant component, for example, in building muscle and maintaining muscle mass. So now we've got to provide that stimulus. And so what I try to educate them on is we've got to create some polarization in your training because too many people are in this kind of classic high zone three low zone four that they're working all the time it's amazing for dopamine all those endorphins as you're saying but then look at the results is it driving the body composition that you really really want for all that effort do you see it most runners for example do not have the physique that the people are hankering after 
Um, and yeah. I think when you start to break it down for them and, and get them to understand um, how it works, you can begin to get their buy-in. And then when they do something really hard, yeah. they recognize, actually, yeah, I really worked hard. Now I really understand that. And they start to see their metrics change because you, you must see this as well, right? People where they're like, they're coming to you and their HRV isn't moving at all. So when they start to see the, the results and it moving and they feel better and they feel more energized mm-hmm. and then the yeah. weight comes off and their body composition changes and they can see their abs again they're like ah now i get it but you're right it's the hardest thing initially to get the buy-in everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face i mean that's you know mike tyson's famous quote right you get punched in the mouth and then your plans just go out the window it's this idea that like the behavioral change aspect is always the hardest thing because we can go to the drawing board and develop this beautiful looking plan that we think we are going to be able to execute without any problem but then when we get down to it it's really hard and that could mean things being taken out of our schedule that we think are either helping us or are good for us but maybe aren't or implementing new things. Just change in general is really freaking difficult. But I love how you mentioned when people start seeing the results, when their objective data change change, and when their subjective experience change, I'm feeling better. I don't feel as stressed. I don't feel as depressed. I feel like my energy levels have now been increased. Then that's the key reinforcer that will keep them coming back for more and more and more until you know some inevitable thing in life will derail. And then it's their opportunity to come back again because that's everybody, right? We always mm. have some level of derailment in life. And we have to recognize that. Like it's not going to be just this beautiful paved road for us at all times. Sometimes like the road's going to be really nice and paved and smooth and it's a really easy going ride. And then sometimes you're going to hit a couple speed bumps or a couple potholes and it's not going to be pretty. It's all about like how do we readjust and recover And how do we get back up onto the smooth parts of the road or at least try to find our way back there? So I think that that is such a key component. So for you, when we think about kind of this idea of exercise, obviously, I know that you're recommending to all clientele to engage in some level of exercise, but do you kind of like this balance? It almost sounded like this and correct me if I'm wrong, Angela, this balance of kind of like the lighter intensity, like some might refer to it as like zone one, maybe we'll consider walking zone two as kind of, you know, like light exercise, which is what I engage and promote a lot kind of here on this podcast. And then kind of like on the other end of the spectrum will be more of like that zone five, like high intensity repeat training or interval training. Is that kind of where you like to have people instead of like sitting more in like the zone three, zone four, where we kind of seen from research is typically not nearly as effective as kind of like the other ends of the spectrum? Yeah, definitely. I couldn't agree more. So zone, lots and lots of zone two activity, right? Brisk walking um, is such a good thing for your health. Like if you, if you only brisk walked, you'd be extending your longevity. But if you can throw in, the next pillar is you've got to throw in some strength training because we've got to protect your muscle mass, your insulin sensitivity, your bone density. So that's really, really important. And that can be done as part of more of a high intensity workout, or it can be done on its own. I actually think better results are when you can track what you're doing and use progressive overload. I think that when you're throwing in a different workout every single time and you're not really able to see that progression, your body composition results will not be as good, but it depends on what you're really trying to achieve as the outcome. And I think when people are doing these things, what I've found, just tracking back a little bit when you were talking about how do you get buy-in, how do you get behavior change, I always think that when you set a goal, you've got to set the identity. So you can never, you'll never achieve a goal through brute force, right? Force negate. 
states to a degree mm -hmm. and your 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 subconscious mind will show up and actually kind of sabotage your efforts if you haven't created the identity around what you want and so for these high performers what I work with them on is not just their identity in fitness but their identity at work like who do they want to be how do they want to be their most high performing self well how, who do they want to be in their relationship as a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or girlfriend whatever it is how are they going to show up as that and then looking at their relationship as a father or a mother how will they show up and then working with them on those identities and really understanding who they want to be and creating them because actually the same person that is leading a company as a high performing hard charging ceo that isn't going to be how they want to show up with their three-year-old when they walk into the house because that requires someone different and when they start to create yeah. the identity and formulate behavior change around those identities and connect with the results and the benefits then the magic i find really starts to happen yeah it's beautiful i love i love that and one thing to highlight too is that when you talk about this kind of switching in and out of identities and identifying identities it's not a facade right it's not like we're pretending to be someone here or there it's just that at some points in time we have to wear different hats and we play different roles and like that is adaptable that's just a part of human nature and what we need to use to adapt but sometimes those waters get a little bit uh, blurred a little bit muddy and and we kind of allow things to seep over into other areas of life that we don't want them to seep into like CEO and, you know, co-founder, I'll say for me, CSO of a health tech company. And then I walk in and, you know, my four-year-old runs up to me and I still have that hat on. It's not typically received well. And it's a little bit of a gut check. Like when I walk in and I just know uh, almost immediately, uh-oh, like I either said something that was in like Jay is the CSO mode or I, you know, and I need to now go into Dada mode and that's okay. Yeah. And that's authentic to who I am. I, I am Dada and I'm also, you know, co-founder of Hanu Health. Like I, it's just different identities, but the, the big thing is that these are not facades, but these are things that we need to recognize and to operate within those frameworks at the most appropriate time. So I like that you mentioned that because I think that sometimes goes overlooked and people uh, don't recognize just the vast importance of that concept. So yeah. There's one more thing that I want to talk to you about, Angela. I mean, I know we didn't get to hit all of the shift model, but I wanted to make sure that we're conscientious of time. But one thing that a lot of people ask about, which is a sexy, fun topic to talk about in regards to stress resiliency and health optimization, it's this concept of biohacking. And it's this concept of leveraging tools in order to optimize. And I know you're a huge fan of like integrating kind of these concepts and the use of leveraging technology. So maybe even kind of moving outside of this realm of stress resiliency, and let's just talk about overall health in general, which that obviously fits within that context. One question that I love to ask people who are really into like the health optimization and biohacking field and community is like, what currently for you is like the most exciting either form of biohack or tool or technology that you're using or you're recommending to your clientele to optimize health? What's the hot topic for you right now? The hot one for me. I would say, yeah. I mean, light therapy is one of my big, big 
like loves, I would say. And actually, it's funny, I've been using a, a device known as the BioLite, which is red light therapy for your mouth. And it comes in as a gum shield and it actually starts to optimize the health. So we know that like your microbiome begins in the mouth, right? That's the top of mm-hmm. your, um, yeah. your digestion and everything. And so you can actually put this on and it kind of heals your gums. Um, it's really interesting area and there's yeah. kind of new research coming out. You've seen a post of me wearing that. So that's quite, that's something I've been playing with. And I love light therapy, right? Because light is bioactive in humans. And I think the more we can understand this, the better, you know, and it's such a powerful tool to use to enhance mitochondrial health. And I think we are Mm -hmm. also bombarded with stress and toxins and everything that's going on that we really need to look Mm -hmm. after our mitochondria. So red light therapy is always one alongside, you know, getting that, um, I get, I have a full spectrum sauna. So I use my sauna as well. And I think, you know, the, the benefits for cardiovascular health are really profound. Oh, yeah. um, do you use your sauna uh, directly after fitness or exercise or do you schedule like a separate time for your sauna? So this is funny, isn't it? This is going to be, this is me being a girl because I have long hair. So the best time for me for sauna is in the morning <laughs> because sure, no, it's just not practical. Like if I was, uh, I always look at Ben Greenfield when he talks about how he does this and then he'll do this in the afternoon and then I just dived in the sauna and then I jumped in my oh, ice bath yeah. and then you just go like this with your hair and it's all done and it's like yeah that's because you have short hair you don't wear makeup and this is easy for you <laughs> it's, so, it's so true it's so true because it's funny because my wife has said the exact same thing for me it's like i i do my gym workout and then immediately it's my sauna session for 20 minutes i have a swedish sauna that i go to and then it's a cold shower right afterwards which you know could kind of match up i guess for some women if you're like okay well i can hit all three but for sometimes it just doesn't like you got long hair you got makeup you got all these other things like that's a lot of time like that's has to be built into the schedule so i totally get it us guys like we do have it pretty easy on that and it's just kind of like yeah shake it off we're good (laughs) yeah exactly exactly so i tend to do that in the morning actually the first thing i would do you know one of the things i really like to do is the first thing i do in the morning is meditate that is always mm-hmm. the thing that I start the day with every time because it really, really sets. And at the end of it is a visualization. So I visualize how I want my day to go. And I find that a really powerful thing. And I know that's not, I suppose, strictly speaking, biohacking, but it kind of is biohacking your brain. So I do that. It um, yeah. And it's so powerful. And I do gratitude as well in the morning. And then I will do some form of more gentle exercise. So like sometimes just jump on my walk bike and do like some zone mm-hmm. two training. Angela, like how do how do people find you if they want to uh receive some more awesome information or even potentially work with you? What, what do they need to do? So I'm most active on Instagram in terms of platforms. And that is Angela S. Foster. I also have for women that are listening, um, a Facebook group for if you're into biohacking and health optimization, and that's female biohacker. Um, you can find my podcast, which is high performance health. And then if you want to kind of get in touch with me, my website is AngelaFosterPerformance.com. And then the last thing is, if you just want to get a free health check and see where you are in terms of things like everything I talk about in that shift model, um, then you can get a free personalized report from me as well. And you just want to go to yourtotalhealthcheck.com and it's like less than two minutes to fill it out and we'll send you a free personalized report on your health. That's awesome. Yourtotalhealthcheck.com. That's right. right, yeah. We, we will put that in the show notes. I mean, that's an amazing offer from you, Angela. So people like take advantage of that. That's really cool. That's awesome. <laughs> Well, again, it has been um, amazing having you on. Always excited to uh, to talk with you and just hear about kind of what you're doing in the health world and the optimization world and how you're helping so many people. So again, Angela, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me, Jay. I've really enjoyed it. All right, indeed. All right, everybody, take care. We'll see you next week. 
Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less. (laughs) Thank you.